Welcome to the Basin Church Podcast. And as a church, our mission is to bring hope and wholeness through Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are and as you listen today, we hope that you find hope in Jesus and even move one step closer to being made whole. For some reason, I just can't clearly communicate in a text message. And I don't know why that is. Um, but there are many times where I have texted someone and I get the text message back and I'm going, that's not even what I said. That's not even what I meant. And, and in text message, the thing is you can't read emotion, right? You can't read emotion. You can't read uh, any of that stuff. You, you can't really see the person's face. so You don't know what they're saying. I mean, the only thing you really know is all caps is like they're yelling at you. But other than that, you really don't know what's going on. And so there's many times where I've done it. So now here's what I do is if I want to give out important information, I either A, you know, script it out and then look it over plenty of times, or I just say, can I call you? And because I don't want anything lost in translation, because there's a lot of this lost in translation, whether it's you're speaking to someone or whether you're doing a text message, there's this idea of lost communication. And you get words get mixed up and, and things just kind of jumble together when it's a text message. But communication... There's a lot of misunderstanding when we communicate with people. There's a lot of times where you can say one thing and they say, oh, that's what you meant? I mean, it works especially with kids like, okay, that's what you meant? Or you think it in your head, but it really doesn't come out to your mouth. But there's this idea of mixed messages. And there are times where people have these mixed messages and they really aren't communicating and they're off kind of, well, you said this and you meant this. And in reality, though, there's this new thing with dating. They call it mixed messages, and I've not been dating for quite some time, but it, it, um, dating is the fact of this. They, they call it mixed messages when you're dating somebody because one person will be involved in the relationship, right? They're ready to go. They're ready to do this, but the other person only wants to do it when it's convenient. In other words, they say, yeah, I want to be in a relationship, but they're not really ready to commit. So the other person saying, well, you're giving me what? Mixed messages are you in or you out and what they say kind of contradicts what they or how they are responding or acting but think about this miscommunication and these mixed messages think about this though it's not just dating it's in every part of our lives if you have children you know that hey i want you to do this and i want you say so in your mind you're thinking okay i want you to clean your room and you go back to the kid, and the kid's like, well, it's clean. And you're thinking, that's not clean, and that's not what I meant. And, and so you have that kind of miscommunication with the, with the child, and you're thinking, okay, well, what's wrong here? But they don't understand the definition of what you want or what they want. I mean, and then even go further from that, let's just be honest, we have it even in our marriages, in relationships, your friendships. How many times have you gotten into a little spout because you miscommunicated? Well, I thought you meant this. No, I thought you meant this. And I thought, and then this little thing gets into a big problem, right? And all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, we're not even talking to each other. So it, there's this whole idea of that, but really communication needs to be clear. We all know that. We all understand that communication needs to be clear. And the messages that you give to other people, whether it's a text message or you talk to them on the phone or you're clearly communicating to that person, it needs to be clear. You know, t teachers know this too. When they want their children to do something, the students to do something, they have to clearly communicate directions. Coaches go out there with a game plan and practice and in the game, and they clearly communicate what they want to be done. 
If we don't clearly communicate, then we get frustrated. Now, all that to say is, let's just go to the mixed message of Christianity. Let's go to the messages that Christianity over the years has kind of given off or has communicated. If you talk about this idea of Christianity, there's some people who kind of look at Christianity and just kind of think, well, I'm not so sure about that. Right? I'm not so sure about there's really a God who loves me and a God who cares about me and a God wants the best for me. And I don't know about this Jesus guy. I'm, I'm okay with life and I'm not really into religion and I'm not into that stuff. But even go further than that, think about if you go back in history, there was people who actually forced people into Christianity. They actually forced them kind of, you're going to be a Christian and, and it didn't give Christianity a good view. And people have this kind of this mixed message of, uh, of this. Well, why do they have a mixed message? I'll tell you why they have a mixed message. It's because the followers of Jesus have given a mixed message. See, people kind of look at, look at the followers of Jesus and they go, well, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, you're, you're saying all this stuff, but your life doesn't mirror and doesn't reflect what you believe. And so they have this kind of this view of God by looking at their followers and saying, well, this is just totally different than what you're communicating. And not only that, but people also have experienced God in a different way and they have experienced him and they're, they're fully not grown or spiritually mature in their faith and then they get upset with him. And they think God is this revengeful, angry God and that somehow he's out to get me or somehow you know i i asked for him and i prayed this this prayer and it didn't work and because it didn't work then i can't trust this god and so a lot of people have these messages with with, with god and in christianity but the fact is this god's message has not changed and who he is and what he has done and what he came to do has not changed and so people think that it's it's kind of murky and it's kind of not crystal clear but god hasn't changed what has changed is us and our perception of him and, and the followers and the mixed messages that we're getting. But the reality is God hasn't mixed up his message. God hasn't mixed up anything. He, he's very clear in where he stands. He's very clear in what he does. So, so over the course of time, who God is, what he's all about, and what Jesus came to do has been distorted from, from time. And the reason why it's been distorted, look, it hasn't just been distorted on our time, but think about when Jesus was on earth. Think about how many people missed Jesus and what he came to do. Think of the, the religious leaders and all everyone around that they missed the sign. They missed the message that God was clearly communicating to the world. And all of a sudden, they, they get confused and they're like, well, I, I, I don't understand it. And even today, some people just look at Jesus as a historical figure and say, well, he's just this great man. And they still miss it. But see, God gave clues, and he gives clues in the Old Testament. He would give clues all the way up until Jesus comes. And yet, even when Jesus uh, came, and they didn't get the clues. They didn't get the prophecy. They didn't get what God was trying to communicate back then to what was going to happen in the present. They totally missed it. See, some people thought Jesus would come, and he would overthrow the government. But he shows up as a baby. See, there's this, this uh, whole idea. And then Isaiah, we've been talking about Isaiah, and Isaiah has all these prophecies. He has 14 prophecies, 14 things that will, the Messiah will be. He gives us clues. He gives the nation of Israel clues what will happen when this Jesus comes, this Messiah comes. 
And so when you have this idea of Messiah, we kind of get it a little bit confused. See, if you've been around long enough, you've heard people, and they usually talk about it in political circles or, or anytime someone's trying to rescue or save someone from something, they say he's a messianic figure. And really all they're saying is they have this inflated view of somebody, he's charismatic, and they're hoping that he will save them from their troubles. Now, it could be a leader, it could be a person, um, in business, it could be any of that, but they have this idea that this messianic figure is going to come and save them. Well, the Bible has a completely different view of a messianic figure. See, Messiah in the Bible is this, that is, it is God-given authority to carry out his mission. Simple, that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save, but he comes and he walks with the authority of God and he carries out the mission of God. And ultimately that mission was to save the people. So when we're talking about that, we'll begin to see that Isaiah, we're going to open up to Isaiah chapter 11, and Isaiah begins to unpack even more this description about Isaiah, uh, Isaiah uh, uh, in his book, The Messiah. He begins to unpack it a little bit more. Now, let me just catch you up because Isaiah chapter 11, we've talked uh, from this point. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, he kind of lays this sign out. And he says this, that in the most desperate despair and the darkest time for Israel, when they're in the point, or Judah, excuse me, when it's Judah and the king, and they're about to attack him and they want to overthrow the kingdom, Isaiah comes and says, hey, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is this, that a virgin will be born and you'll be called him Emmanuel. And in that time of despair and destruction, God gives this, this sign to him and says, hey, God, God is with you. God will be with you, not now and in the future. And he says this in, in chapter 9. So he goes for the king, and then Isaiah lays it out a little bit more, and he says that he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be Mighty God. He'll be the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And he kind of lays it out, and he gives this whole description for the Israelites, and he even gives us a forewarning of what this Messiah is going to be like. But now he kind of unpacks it a little bit more and unpacks what he's going to do and what this Messiah is all about. And so in chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1 and, and go down. As he describes this Jesus, the Messiah who is to come, it says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says, A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, before Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is saying, and he refers to world powers, and these world powers are trees, and these trees are getting cut down and they're laid down. So it's in total despair, total destruction, that the world powers will be laying down. But out of this, he says this, a shoot will stump from, from Jesse, and his roots will branch fruit or bear fruit and what he's saying is there's a description of a shoot or a branch that will come from the lineage of jesse it'll be uh and then jesse is in line with the lineage of david so it's going to come from the house of david as well and as he begins to say this he says that this person will surpass all human knowledge that this shoot this branch that's why it's capitalized a branch will come out and it will surpass all knowledge and he's thus saying this will be the messiah and he's referring back to chapter 9, verse 6. So he says this, but here's the interesting thing. People go, well, why does he say Jesse? Why doesn't he just say, why doesn't he just say David? Well, the reason why he just doesn't say David is because David's kingdom has lost its splendor at this time. 
Now remember, now you have David and then you have Solomon, and then it's split. It's kind of lost its whole splendor, like the kingdom of, uh, of Israel and Judah split. So he doesn't say, he goes all the way back to the great-great-grandfather of Jesse, right? Which David and then so on and so forth. So that's why he says this, but he says, a new ruler will sprout <clears throat> from an insignificant being. Now here's the, the picture that I, I really uh, like that Isaiah shows. And if you cut down a tree, if you get it down to the stump, you have to take the roots out. You have to take the stump out. So either you can drill down into the stump and put some chemicals in it, or you've got to physically dig around and get all the, uproot, the, the roots up and uproot it and take it out for the stump not to grow back. Now, you know this to be true, and, and I know this as well. If you just cut the stump, you will see like these branches coming off the side, won't you? Right, and, and and we even see it sometimes on our big trees that we have. You'll see them shooting out and sprouting out where they shouldn't be. That's why people have to cut them. So what he's saying is this branch is going to come out and see the roots are so strong that the roots are not going to go anywhere. So these roots go deep, and he says even though there's destruction and even though there's things that come about, there will be a shoot that shoots out of this. So when he begins to say this, he says the hope of the Messiah, although there's destruction, Life will come. And that's the picture that he gives when he talks about this stump. So look, even though you're in destruction, Israel and Judah, even though you're in a time of despair, there will be this shoot. It will be the hope of the Messiah. And you're now in destruction, and now you're in despair. But guess what will happen? Life will come. This Messiah will bring you life. And then he continues, and he says that it will bring fruit, which means he will prosper and he will benefit other people. So his Messiah will shoot up, benefit, and prosper other people. Now, he, then he goes to verse 2, and he kind of gives you a category, category of what he will be like. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of his wisdom and understanding, the spirit of his counsel and his might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So he begins to give you this idea of what it's going to look like when he comes on earth. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So the stage, it's a new stage for God's rule, and it's symbolizing that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will be on him. And what it says is the presence of God's Spirit will be evident in his life. You will know the Messiah because you understand the Spirit will be evident in his life completely. And as it is there, it will be characterized by this. Counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So he gives you a sign of this Messiah and what it's going to be characterized as. As the Spirit of the Lord is on him, you'll see him have wisdom. You'll see him have counsel. You'll see him have understanding. You'll see him have might and knowledge, and you'll fear the Lord. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, that's exactly what happens. So he's going to have the fear of the Lord, and he's going to delight in the ways of God. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see this, that, that the Messiah, Jesus, he constantly says, I do what I see my Heavenly Father doing. And when you say that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is awe of the Lord, reverence for the Lord, trust in Him, and obedience. And if you look at Jesus' life, He had all that. He does what the Heavenly Father is telling Him to do. He is a mere reflection. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen your Heavenly Father. But that is completely different than Isaiah's day because these people were not into doing the word of God. 
They were not into fearing the Lord. So Isaiah kind of gives them, the Messiah is going to fear the Lord, but you should be fearing him right at this moment. And then he goes on from 3 to verse 6, and he describes his reign. He describes with this Messiah, this child, he's going to come and he grows up, what his reign is going to be like in his rule. And he says this, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. So again, unlike Isaiah's day, the Messiah is going to make decisions that are fair and just and right. He's not going to be based on what he can see and the appearance, and he's not going to judge according to hearsay. So completely different than man. Completely different from the human leaders and rulers that they have at this moment. And he says this in verse 4, But the righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. See, he will judge impartially and in righteousness. That's what he will do. And so for the needy and the poor, he will be completely different than human rulers. He will not oppress them like the current leaders do today. The needy and the poor are oppressed by the kings of that day. He says this this Messiah, he will come and he will not do that. But he will rule justly, he will rule fairly, and the needy will not be oppressed. They will have his righteousness. And he says what will happen is the wicked will be slain. And in verse 5, he says this, that, that he will reign with truth and righteousness and almost as if he has a belt around him as a sash or a belt that will be guarded around him like clothing. That he will, he will do such things, truth, righteousness, just, and fair. And what you have known from these leaders, you, it will be completely different and opposite when this Messiah comes, this child that is born of a virgin. When he rules, it will be completely different than what you know to this day. And then he, he, he does something interesting, is now he brings illustrations from the animal world. So Isaiah brings these illustrations from the animal world, and it's totally contrary to how the world works. Now listen to this in verse 6. He says, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf with the lion and the yearling together. Look at this. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat the straw like the ox. And the infant will play near the cobra's den. And some of your moms are like, oh, like, no, what are you talking about? And the young child will put his hands into a viper's nest. Who in the world would put their hand into a viper's nest unless you want to get bit? But here's what he's saying, and the reason why he gives this description, because most of us think this is ridiculous. How in the world is this going to happen? It's going to happen because the curse is going to be lifted. What do you mean the curse? Well, let's go back to Garden of Eden. Have you ever read the passage, and you look at it, and you're thinking, a snake is talking to Eve, and you know what, Eve, Eve doesn't go, why are you talking to me? Does she? It's normal, right? It is normal because here's why. The curse of sin was not on the earth. See, the Garden of Eden, there was no animals going after each other. Lions were not attacking giraffes. 
Leopards were not attacking lambs. Right? Leopards were laying down. The bears and the cows could eat like the hay. See, it's completely different in the Garden of Eden. And what he's saying is, is that when this Messiah comes, when he rules and he reigns, it, the curse of sin, it will be no more. And that what will happen is these animals will go back to being tame and harmless. And so this little child, a child will be safe with lions, bears, cobras, and vipers. And you're thinking, what? He's saying that tranquility will prevail. That peace and harmony is going to be established when he comes. And as he does this, that everything, the sin will be gone, and everything will go back to the way it was before sin entered the world. And I mean, to me, that's, that's just, it's great news because, again, what he says is the tranquility and the peace is possible because all the earth will have the knowledge of the Lord and who he is. And, and people in all the earth during the time when the Messiah reigns, they will know who he is, what he came to do, and they will obey him, his principles and his word. And see, for us, you're thinking, well, that is just completely opposite of how we know the world. But Isaiah says, when Jesus comes back, that's what it's going to be like. See, I've talked about this new heaven and new earth that talks about Revelation. There's a little glimpse of what it is. Peace. Tranquility. You don't have to worry about anything. There's cows laying down with bears. Leopards with lambs. Children with snakes. And this Messiah, he's to Isaiah, peace will come. And you'll have the knowledge of who he is. And then he continues in verse 10. He says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for his people. And the nations will rally to him, and a resting place will be glorious. So the root of Jesse, the heir to David's throne, right? He's a banner of all peoples. Now, the banner of all nations. And this is kind of different than what was explained in Isaiah 5. Because Isaiah 5, there's talking about their coming and raising uh, issues and raising of problems against Jerusalem, which is the capital of the time of Judah. Now what he's saying is there'll be a resting place and it'll be glorious. There's an invitation to come to this Messiah's reign. So not against Jerusalem, not against his people, but now the Messiah will come and he will invite people into his glorious reign. And then he continues and says this in verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant from his people of Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. See, what Isaiah is saying here is he's speaking that there will be another exodus. That the remnant of Israel and Judah he will gather. He's going to gather his people and it'll be so magnificent. It'll be better than the first exodus. It'll be better than when they left Egypt into the wilderness and the promised land. He said he's going to gather all his people. And as he, he begins to say this, that he will gather them from everywhere, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Now you're like, well, how do you get that? Well, because if you look ge geographically, Egypt is below, it's the south. Cush is Babylonia, which is uh, Iraq, which is kind of 
in the northeast area. Then you have um, uh, Hamath, which is right by Damascus, which is north in Syria. So you got the north, the east, the south, and the Mediterranean, where Israel sits. The Mediterranean is on the west. So he's saying, I'm going to call all these people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. I'm going to call them, and I'm going to gather them. And it's going to be so great and so magnificent and so glorious that it'll be better than when Moses and the Israelites came out of Egypt. But here's where it's going to take place and when it's going to take place. It started at the exile during then. So they were exiled to Babylonia, and he's going to call them back eventually, back to Israel and back to Jerusalem. He calls all the Israelites back. But he's also, it's not going to end till the time has come. What does that mean? That means if you look at John, that Jesus is going to gather his flock, and they're not just going to be Jews. They're going to be Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for me because I'm not Jewish. But God will, will gather us. He will gather his people. The Messiah will rule and reign, and he will gather Jews and Gentiles, and he will gather his flock. And he will be the shepherd, as John 10 says, the good shepherd. So it's pretty amazing what Isaiah says as he begins to unfold this. And though the Messiah's message could have been distorted, it could have been murky, and people might misunderstand it, but Isaiah is saying, look, it is very clear here. I'm giving you all the signs. I'm giving you all the clues to what's going to happen. Right? It, now, Jesus hasn't returned for the second time, and it will eventually, but we're, we're giving all these clues. And he's saying, I couldn't be more clear. And so here's what the, the whole point of Isaiah saying in this passage. He's saying, look, that God's message of the Messiah is not of, it is of peace, but not of conflict. That God's message of the Messiah of Jesus, through Jesus, was one of peace and not conflict. Now, for some people, that's difficult. Because if you've ever heard some people say, yeah, man, I just, I just feel like I'm in conflict with God or I'm wrestling with God. Like, I, I've been praying and praying and praying, and I just can't get an answer. Or, you know what, I, I did this, and, and I thought I did this right thing, and, and he didn't show up when I wanted to show up. And some people are in conflict because they're enemies of God, which means they're not in relationship. They don't believe in Jesus. And so they don't have a relationship with him, so they're kind of in conflict. And, and God would say that you're an enemy of me. He doesn't want to be an enemy of his people, but... Again, there are some people who choose to reject him. And so there are people who are in conflict with God, don't need God, don't need Jesus, don't need him in this, and they're conflict. And there's some of us who are just in conflict, and we could just we could go to church all our lives, and there's sometimes where we get frustrated with God too. And sometimes we just feel like we're button heads with him. If we're honest. But no matter where you where you are or or where you currently reside in that conflict or, or peace, the thing is is that. He came to bring peace. And in Christ, we have peace. And when you talk about Christmas and during the Christmas time, what do we celebrate? The Prince of Peace. Here's what Jesus said when he left. He said this in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave you, and my peace I give you. Peace, tranquility, and we can live at peace with God, and we can live at peace with others because of Jesus. And we have peace because of what he came to do. See, Jesus came to what? To rescue us, 
to redeem us and restore us. See, when we have a problem, what do we tend to do? Look for someone to help resolve it, or we try to resolve it ourselves. We try to work it out. If we have a problem, we're trying to work it out ourselves. But the reality is, is the problem between God and mankind, we could not work it out ourselves. Right? There's nothing that you could do in order to get in a great relationship with God. Nothing. There's nothing you could have done, said, whatever. But here's the thing. that when The strain was on us, our mistakes and what we've done and what we've happened, we put the strain on the relationship, didn't we? And so there's this gap between us and humans from the beginning. When Adam and Eve and that, that snake deceived the, the, the woman, and he had, the curse was he had to go on his belly. From that moment on, there was this gap between, and Jesus said, I've got, God said, I gotta fix it with my son. I've gotta fix this gap. I gotta fix this strain. So he sent Jesus to redeem and restore that which was lost. I've come to bring peace. Right now I'm in enemies with humankind, and now I've gotta bring peace and, and close that gap. And so Jesus came and he brought that for us. And it's, it's so great to, to, in Christmas time, to celebrate the peace that God gave us through Jesus. But here's not only that he wants us to do that, but spiritually he wants us to be peace with him. Because he says this, I, I, you might be enemy with God, but I want you to be a friend. He calls us friends. Or he calls us, when you get in a relationship, you are, John would say, you become a child of God. Not just a creation, you become a child of God. And so that's what he wants from us. But spiritually that's what he wants. But this is he also wants this. He wants to bring peace to us. Now in our lives and in our relationships. In our relationships. Let me tell you this. There are some of you who have relationships that are characterized by hostility, anger, and unforgiveness. And Christmas is around the corner. And some of these relationships are within your family. Your extended family. And all of a sudden, when you get around Christmas, you're like dreading going to their house. You're dreading whatever it is. Or maybe you've not talked to this certain individual for a long period of time. And so there's unforgiveness and there's this bitterness and this anger and this hostility. And all the things when it comes around Christmas and you got to get around them, it surfaces to the top. And what happened in the past all of a sudden comes full circle into the present. And there's a problem. And the problem is, is there's no peace in that relationship. And I don't know what has happened in that relationship. I just know there's no peace in that relationship. And it could be you're harboring unforgiveness. It could be uh, whatever it is. I haven't talked to them because. And see, here's here's what the, the Scripture says, and here's what Paul says. He says this. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, if at all possible, okay, you can put that in parentheses. If at all possible, live in peace with everyone. So if Jesus came to give you peace and you have peace with Jesus, he says, I want you to have peace with other people. So Paul would say, if at all possible, live in peace with everyone. So here's my question to you. Have you done everything on your end to make peace with that person? 
Well, you don't know what they've done. See, because what ends up happening is we begin to reason and make excuses. Well, you don't know what they've done, and I, I just can't do that. And if I forgive them, then I let them off the hook, and then this, and I, I just can't do that. But yet, if you've been forgiven, the word says you shall forgive. Because if you don't forgive, you're going to be marked by bitterness, and it's going to ruin your relationship and ruin your life. And so for some of you today, maybe you just need to come to a place and, and say, I'm going to forgive them. Well, what happens if they don't forgive me? Then that's on them. But you need to come to a place where you choose to have peace and you release that. If they don't accept your forgiveness, there's nothing you can do. Because Paul would say, if at all possible, live at peace with people. If at all possible, do that. And so some of you need peace in your relationships. And you begin to live out the fullness that God has for your life. But here's the other thing some of you are in, and that what God wants to do through your life, that God wants to bring peace to your life. See, some of you today are in a place of despair, depression, don't know what to do. And God wants to bring peace to your life. Now, I, I want to just read you something because if this guy can do it, you can do it. Because it, peace might be far off for you, and it was far off for this man. His name was William Wadsworth Longfellow. Maybe you've heard of him. But he wrote this poem in 19, excuse me, 1863. And let me just tell you the story behind this poem that ultimately turned into a song. And this is his story. Now, Charles, his son, okay, the story behind his poem, was the oldest of six, six children born to his wife and Longfellow. They celebrated critic and poet. Charles had five younger siblings, a brother and four sisters, and one who had died as an infant. Less than two years earlier, Charles's mother, Fanny, had tragically died after her dress caught fire. Henry, awakened from a nap, tried to extinguish the flames as best he could, first with a rug, then with his own body. But she had already suffered severe burns. She died the next morning, July 10, 1861. And Longfellow's own burns were so severe that he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. He stopped shaving on the count of the burns, growing a beard that would become associated with his image. At times he feared that he could be sent to an asylum on the account of his grief. On November 27, 1863, excuse me, while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of Mine Run, Charlie had been shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. It traveled across his back and nicked his spine. He nearly avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was alarmed when informed, informed by the army surgeon that his son's wound was very serious and paralysis might ensue. Three surgeons gave more favorable report that evening, suggesting a recovery would require him to be long in healing at, at least six months. On Friday, December 25th, 1863, Longfellow, as a 57-year-old, 
widowed, father of six children, and oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and the dissonance in his own heart and in the world. He observes around him that Christmas day. He heard the Christmas bells ringing in Cambridge and singing of peace on earth. But he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of his optimistic outlook. The theme of listening reincurs throughout his poem, eventually leading to the settleness of the confident hope even in the midst of bleak despair as he recounts to himself that God is alive and his righteousness shall prevail. Within a decade, in 1872, the poem was put to music by English or organist Kalkin for a processional set to the melody of Waltham. Now, perhaps you know that song. I heard the bells on Christmas morning. And if you read that, it'll say, Peace on earth, peace on earth. That came from there. And when he was in despair and he was at the point where he felt like God was so far away, it reminded him of who he was, that he was alive and his righteousness will prevail. And I don't know what you're going through. And perhaps you're not at the point where you're like Longfellow, where you are widowed and have severe burns and your son is almost paralyzed by a bullet. Maybe you're not at that point. But let's be honest. Some of us who are walking through life can be in despair and destruction. And some of us might be in a point where we get up and depression has overwhelmed us. And we don't know what to do. And I don't know if you're in a, a situation with a family member. I don't know if you're in a situation at work. I don't know if there's a situation in your relationship, marriage, or your student and is struggling at school, or you're a child, and even as an adult child, you're having issues with your parents. I don't know what it is. But there might be a place where you are here today where you're in despair and you don't know what to do. But here's what I want you to receive today. I want you to receive the peace. And I want you to understand and receive what Longfellow got in 1863. That God is alive and that his righteousness will prevail. Because when you talk about the poem that turned into a song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It points to the manger scene, and it points to the peace on earth, that the baby came to bring peace on earth. And when the baby came, it points to peace. When Luke writes in, 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 his, in his gospel in chapter 2, and he describes the angels out in the shepherds, he says, glory to God, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. See, the message of Jesus is peace. Peace with him and peace with other people. That is, by grace we are saved. It's nothing that we could have done on our own. And he brought peace between us. And he, he wants to give us peace with, with other people. And peace in our lives. And so when you think about this and you understand exactly what this is, you begin to unpack this idea that the message of the Messiah is, has not changed, is not misunderstood, and it's clear. That Jesus came and his message was peace and not conflict. And today I want you to receive peace. And I want you to know that God is alive. And then his righteousness will prevail. Thanks for listening. 
And if you would like more information on our church or you'd like to visit us in person, you can go to basinchurch.org. And as always, we hope this content helps you on your faith journey.